Uh, my name is Joey Kraft. I have the joy and the responsibility of preaching God's word for you this morning, and I bring you greetings from Restoration Church, which is just across the river, co-laborers in the gospel. Uh, Mike has been a dear friend before our church even started. So Mike was integral in so many ways in pivotal moments in the life of our church. So brother, I want to say thank you. God bless you. I'm thankful for not just your desire to pastor this church, but to pastor many others and see the gospel advance. And Arlington Baptist Church, I'm thankful for you as a whole. I praise God for the gospel light that you are in this area. We regularly pray for you all and thank God for his gospel grace among you. Uh, for my Christian friends who are maybe visiting this morning and you're looking for a church to call home, uh, I commend this church to you. This church will be a glad place to receive you and help you think about Christ and what it means to follow him. And for my non-Christian friends, maybe you're here this morning and you have more questions than you do have answers. You're asking, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What is a church? I commend this church to you. They happily walk alongside of you and patiently and humbly answer your questions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin to open his word. God, we come and we recognize that you are holy and we are not mere peddlers of your word. We're proclaimers of Christ. So in this place this morning, for the joy of Christ, for the joy of your people, by the power of your spirit, would you so be at work that you inflame faith where it is already present and you give it where it is not, that we might treasure Christ together. Amen. 350 years ago, a man named Blaise Pascal proposed a threefold strategy for commending Christianity to those that don't believe. And I quote, The cure is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, Make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then, how that it is. So he says we should show Christianity is respectable. We don't have to turn off our brains. We show Christianity is desirable. We don't have to ignore the deep longings of our hearts. And only then do we show Christianity to be true, that it maps on to reality. In other words, we need to show that Christianity to the good news of Jesus isn't just true, but good and beautiful. And being a guest, I don't know everyone here personally, but I do know something about you. I know that you carry burdens and feel brokenness. I know you long to be truly known and fully loved. Children, I know that you long for those times when there's no more bumps or bruises or boo-boos, when there's no more mocking at school or being bullied. I know there's many things that all of us in this world enjoy, but we yearn for a better world, don't we? We heard it prayed for just a moment ago where injustice would be gone, a world without hate or enemies, only peace and flourishing, no more disease, no more death, only joy and celebration. Deep down, we all want the same thing. But here's the question, how do we get it? Well, our text for this morning begins to tell us, it points us on the path, not just what is true, but who our hearts were made to treasure. This morning we'll be in Psalm chapter 8. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible there. It's on page 450 in the Pew Bible in front of you. For if you're new to the Bible, 8 is the big number, verse is the little number. 
And as we, as we think about the Psalms, that we have to remember the Psalms is a book of poems. It's a collection of songs. But they're not like the radio's top 100 that just happen to be placed together randomly. Right? The, the, the Bible, the book of the Psalms, has a theological shape. The Psalms connect to and flow from one another. And so at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 invites us into the blessed life. Psalm 2 ends with that same invitation. So in Psalm 1, we see the blessed life is found as meditating on the law of the Lord. And Psalm 2 tells us the blessed life is found in taking refuge in the Lord. And then as you read, you see Psalms 3 through 7, David doing just that. Trusting the law of the Lord, taking refuge in the Lord, so that he might live the blessed life no matter what he faces. And at the end of Psalm 7, you see there in your Bible, verse 17, the chorus from David's lips. I will give to the Lord the thanks, do his righteousness, and sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Now look at the beginning of Psalm 9. David says the same thing. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 7 ends. Psalm 9 begins with David singing praise to the Lord's Most High name. That's exactly what we have in Psalm 8. David singing praise. Let's read that. Psalm 8. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master... According to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God, beloved. The main idea of Psalm 8 is found in verse 1 and in verse 9. Did you notice they are the same? Verse 1 and verse 9 bookend this passage. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's your main idea of this passage. How majestic is the Lord's name in all the earth. In verses 2 through 8, David shows us why the Lord's name is majestic. But first and last, he declares and delights that it is so. And that's where I want us to begin, to consider David's declaration and invitation of marveling at the Lord's majesty. How majestic is the Lord's name? Now, the first words of David's lips in Psalm 8 are, O Lord. And at this point in the Psalms, David is called upon the Lord, names, name of the Lord 30 times. In fact, Lord is one of the first words in Psalm 3, 5, 6, 7, and now 8. And you'll notice that that Lord is in all capitals. Right? So this is a translation of Yahweh. 
Not a generic name for God, but his personal covenant name he gave specifically to his people. It's how he first revealed himself to his people in Exodus 3. God says, I am who I am. Lord, no beginning, no end. He never changes, perfect in every way, absolute and almighty. David says, oh, Lord, our Lord. And no, David is not stuttering, right? So the, the second word you'll notice is not capitalized in your Bible. It's the word here for king or ruler. Here's what David is saying for the very first utterance of his psalm. The Lord, the one true self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal God is our king, is our ruler. And did you notice the corporateness of this? It's not just my Lord, though David says that at times. In this instance, it's our Lord. And did you notice the superscription? Often we throw those away. But notice, who's it written for? The choir master. So that he might lead God's people in corporate worship. This invitation is a call to exclaim the Lord's majesty together. Yes, you can sing of the Lord's glory and beauty in your shower. You can do it by yourself with earbuds in as you listen to Spotify. But isn't there something about the corporateness of praise that brings fuller expression to the Lord's majesty? Just as we've done this morning, right? We're often weak and weary. We need to be reminded of the Lord's majesty, his splendor, his beauty, his character, his nature. And one of the primary ways the Lord has designed this to happen is to regularly gather with Lord's people, read his word, sing his word, pray his word, preach his word, to declare his majesty together. And so trying to live the Christian life alone is like drinking salt water. At first, it might be new and novel, but eventually it's going to shrivel you up and dry you out. Isolated and alone, the Lord's majesty appears to shrink down to the size of our own life. But his majesty goes well beyond that. How far does his majesty extend? Well, the text tells us. In all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Right, so the Lord is majestic in every way. Absolute in every place. Reality itself is centered upon the Lord did you notice how thoroughly centered this psalm is on the Lord? David begins with, O Lord. He ends with, O Lord. And in the middle, I count 15 times the Lord is referencing who he is or what he does. So children, there's a, there's a good exercise for you this afternoon to, to ask your mom or dad to take Psalm 8 and say, can you show me all those 15 times where the Lord is referenced? It's like a scavenger hunt for you and your parents this afternoon. Go to Psalm 8 and see where the Lord is referenced. But it's thoroughly centered on the Lord, meaning to draw our gaze to Him. This is the main point of Psalm 8, the Lord's majestic beauty. And how does He show it? Well, through His greatness, His goodness, and His grace. Let's look at each one of those. Behold the majesty of the Lord in his unexpected greatness. Look again there at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Let's be honest. 
This seems like an odd transition, doesn't it? David goes from talking about and extolling the infinite beauties of the Lord to talking about infants and babies. And we're like, how does this connect? Well, it shows the unexpected greatness of the Lord. His strength comes through weakness. If we were to think about the most vulnerable, weak, helpless people, we'd think of babies. Right? They have no strength to claim as their own. They're entirely dependent on others for everything. Right? Their screams at times might be deafening and defeating, but it's no way to form an army. An infantry of infants. But this is God's plan to still his enemy. I think there's, there's some level of literalness to this saying. As, as we'll see in just a minute, Jesus applies this to himself as children praise his name. Uh, there's something about the sweet praise of a child that silences those who oppose God. So the dark forces of evil cannot overcome the, the light of Jesus rehearsed by children as the, they're discipled by their church family. The shouts of the world are quieted as a mom holds her little one in her arms, reminding that sweet child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And David is highlighting a larger point as well. In poetic fashion, he's telling us God's ways are not our ways. His strength comes through weakness. It's interesting to note that that word strength in Psalm 8 verse 2 first shows up in Exodus 15. The song of Moses that he teaches the people after the delivered from slavery to Egypt. And we remember, how did that deliverance start? A baby placed in the Nile River. And we remember the Nile, Nile River was supposed to be the place of death. So beginning with a baby, God is so strong that he used what was meant for death to defeat his enemy and bring deliverance to his people. This is his strength. Not with a mighty army, but through the weakness of a baby. And it's clear that David has Genesis on his mind in this psalm. So perhaps we could push back even further, maybe to Genesis 3.15. And there God makes a promise that the serpent, his enemy, would be crushed by the seed, the offspring, the baby of Eve. And perhaps we could go the other way and push forward to another baby that will come and finally and fully defeat to still God's enemy. More on that in a moment. But I hope you see Psalm 8 is telling us that the Lord in his unexpected greatness uses the weak the vulnerable, the helpless, as means of majestic triumph over his enemy. It's exactly what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 through 29. The Apostle Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Beloved, God's ways are not our ways. His greatness is unexpected. Strength through weakness. And this continues today, does it not? The Lord chooses the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless, what's considered foolish and unworthy by the world to make His name known in all the earth. Is this not the church? A motley group of ragtag sinners pushing back the forces of evil, not by our strength and creativity, 
but by the grace of the Lord using our weakness to show His strength. Take heart, beloved. Your weakness, your helplessness is the very thing the Lord will show His greatness through. For my non-Christian friend, if you feel yourself feeling weak, vulnerable, helpless, fragile, welcome. You don't have to hide your flaws and your weaknesses. You don't have to hide your struggles and your shame. See, we don't come to God because we are great. We come to God because He is great. So unexpectedly great that He welcomes you in all your mess, all your misery, all your sin, all your struggles, all your shame, so that His strength might become yours in Christ. Behold the Lord's majesty in His unexpected greatness. We also see the Lord is undeserved in giving us His goodness. So let's behold the majesty of the Lord in His undeserved goodness. In verse 3, David turns his attention back to the heavens. But notice the text. It's not just the heavens, it's your heavens. The heavens belong to God. The stars and the moon, He set in place. Right? And this isn't difficult for the great I Am. Notice what the text says. The heavens are what? The work of your fingers. To be clear, the Lord doesn't have fingers, right? This is, this is what they call anthropomorphic language, using human language, what we know, to talk about things that are so great we can't even fathom. This is poetic, poetic language. David is saying that the host of the heavens, the universe, is nothing but a finger painting with divine digits. This is how majestic the Lord is. And here's the amazing thing. David did not have access to, to NASA and images from the Hubble telescope. Hey, he did not know exactly how big the host of heavens is. Here's the truth. Neither do we. Right, so scientists don't truly know. They estimate the universe contains approximately a septillion stars. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. That's a lot. That's a lot, right? Kids, you know what one of those stars is? It's, it's shining right now. What's one of those stars? The sun, that's right. NASA says the sun is a medium-sized star. Guess how many Earths fit into the sun? A lot, yes. <laughs> About a million. One million Earths fit into the sun. One of the largest stars in the Milky Way is called Canis Majoris. You know how many Earths fit into Canis Majoris? A whole lot. A whole lot, that's right. We got a mathematician and a scientist, astrologist right here, a whole lot. Seven quadrillion. Yeah, that's a one by 15 zeros. It's big. Right? So, so think about it this way. There's 170 billion galaxies in the universe. Milky Way is one of them. If the Milky Way were the size of a football field, our solar system would be the size of a grain of sand. The earth would basically be unmeasurable because it's so small. Billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars, and the Lord does it as a divine finger painting. This is how majestic he is. And now we can understand David's question in verse 4, can't we? 
What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice that it's only after pondering the glory and the greatness of God, David asked, what is man? The simple truth is you cannot rightly answer the question, what is man, until you first answer the question, who is God? And David knows who God is, so he asks, what is man that you're mindful of? This isn't a question of doubt. It's a statement of delight. That God would take notice of him? God would take notice of us? Right now on planet Earth, we are one of about nearly 8 billion people. We live for a short time on a small rock in a little galaxy at the far end of the universe. All things considered, we are insignificant. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. In his eyes, we are significant. David knows the Lord isn't just great, but he's, he's good. He looks at the, the grandeur and he's overcome with the, the greatness of God, but he, he feels good because he knows the Lord is good. A few weeks ago, the elders of our church were on a retreat out in Loray. And we were, it was a crisp, cool night out by a campfire and it was, it was clear. And so we looked up in the sky and it looked like someone had taken a black piece of paper and thrown glitter on it. It was amazing. I mean, you could literally see the Milky Way stretching. You could, you could, you could see the, the Big Dipper, one of many constellations. And you know what none of us did? None of us looked up and said, I'm a really big deal. I am amazing and awesome and powerful. None of us did that. We all felt really, really, really small. And it felt really, really, really good. Why? Why does standing something so awe-inspiring feel so good? Because it points to the reason you and I were created. To delight in someone who is great and good. And when we know that, when we know he's not just great, but he's good, our heart soars with joy and hope. And David knows that God is good. Notice the progression in verse 4. Notice the progression. God is mindful of us and God cares for us. From God in thought to inaction. It's not just that he's aware of our existence. He's attentive and shows compassion individually. He knows and he cares. He's attentive and he's affectionate. He's great and he's good. The Lord is not too busy sustaining the universe. He neglects to care for you. That's how good he is. We are the objects of his undeserved goodness, not because of our merit, but because of his majesty. Christian brothers and sisters, these truths in particular apply to you. As I tell our church often, God loves you and, get this, He likes you. He loves you and He likes you. Zephaniah 3, right? The, the Lord, a mighty one, is in your midst, a God who will save. What does He do? He rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He sings over you with loud singing. This is how the Lord feels about you in Christ, beloved. Isaiah 62, the Lord delights in you. 
There's something about you that thrills the soul of God. That's amazing. That's staggering. He does not continually think about you with low-grade disappointment. God is not a subpar golfer who needs to take mulligans. When He set His affection on you, He meant it eternally because He's that gracious and good. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you have done There is nothing that can be done to you that can steal or reduce God's care and affection for you. He is good. He knows your wounds and your hurts, and He cares. He knows your shame and your struggles, and He's committed to your good, beloved. Some of you are having financial difficulty. God cares. Some of you are having marital conflict. God sees. Some of you are having a hard time with parents or friends. God listens. Some of you are wrestling with unmet godly desires. God hears your pleas. Some of you are dealing with sudden tragedy. God does not forget his promises. I know it doesn't always feel like that. In fact, David knows. In Psalm 13, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But we must remember this. While our feelings are real, they aren't always true. We know God's grace and we know His goodness. While David looked at the stars hung in heaven and declared, What am I that you are mindful of me? We look at God's Son, Jesus, hung on a cross. And we say, What am I that you're mindful of me? God cares so much. He is so good. He sent His Son, Jesus, to redeem and rescue all those who would trust Him, to pay the penalty for our sin, to bear our shame. Behold the majesty of the Lord and His undeserved goodness. We see that at the cross, but we also see it in how God created us. That's where David goes in verse 5. Look again at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In this psalm, David is surely looking back at creation. Genesis chapter 1. And David says, God made me. God made you. How did God make us? A little lower than the heavenly beings. Notice what David does not say. He does not say we are a little higher than the animals. He says we are a little lower than the heavenly. We are created by God himself, not just evolved beasts. To find out who we are, we do not look around at the animals, we look up to God. And what does David say? He crowned us with what? Glory and honor. When the Lord created humanity, He bestowed something on them. He crowned them with something, glory and honor. And we're like, but I thought all glory and honor belonged to God. They're His. Yes. And He takes what is rightfully His, and He crowns humanity with it. In poetic fashion, in affirmation, David is saying what Genesis 1.27 says. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
I've got two daughters. They're a little bit older now, but as we raised them, we, we did something called a catechism. Uh, a catechism is, is asking questions and giving memorized answers to help think through theological things. And so one of the questions we asked was, how and why did God make us? That's the question. Answer, God made us male and female in his own image to glorify him. Question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Answer, to have the ability to know who God is and the responsibility to show what God is like. That's what David is saying here. David knows our dignity, verse 5, crowned with glory and honor, and our responsibility, 6 through 8, dominion. And this truth is what separates us from every created thing. So go read Genesis 1 this afternoon, and you'll see after each day of creation, what does God say? It is good. And then at the very end, after he creates male and female, he says it is very good. That's right. Why the difference? What's now very good? Behold the majesty of the Lord and his goodness, his very goodness of creating us in his image, male and female. That's who we are. That's what's most true about us. So the question that we, that you need to ask, where do you look for your identity? How do you find what's most true and foundational about who you are? David tells us we, we don't find our identity, our honor, our glory by looking down at the animals. We don't find our identity by looking into ourselves. We find our identity by looking up to God and gladly receiving it from him. Who you are in the most significant sense isn't defined by our culture or your feelings that are constantly changing. It's crowned on us by God who never changes. Right? It's the good pleasure of the Lord and his wise purposes to create us in his one image, <coughs> two distinct genders, male and female, that together display his majesty. Here's what this means. That every person from the womb until their last natural breath has inherent dignity, value, and worth. This means our identity isn't created or changed by us. It's crowned on us by God, which means we have God-given purpose and value. This is so contrary to the world around us, isn't it? You have people like the late Stephen Hawking, an atheist, who wrote, quote, Everything that happens, good or bad, must be viewed as simply the result of random, pitiless indifference. End quote. How comforting. But on a more personal level, our culture shouts, make and remake your identity. As long as it fits in the narrative of the day, then you're canceled, if not. That's what we're being told every day. It's what kids you're being told, that you need to make and remake your identity, to, to find it by looking inside of yourself. And here's what I want you to see. If this is true, if we have to make our identity, if it's not crowned on us by God, then human beings have no inherent dignity and equal worth. We'd be no different than dogs and dolphins. We'd just be another machine or mammal, no true purpose, no true meaning. If we're not created by God in His image, our identity shifts as quickly as a social media newsfeed. Your worth 
changes as quickly as one can update their status. And whether explicit or implicit, it's this worldview that leads to believing we get to arbitrarily choose when life begins and when it ends. It's this worldview that reduces God-given gender to my personal feelings. It's this worldview that reduces the core, the most important thing about you, to who you sleep with. It's this worldview that treats immigrants like pawns rather than persons. It's this worldview that believes it's okay to denigrate those who aren't like you. And a world like that isn't beautiful. A world like that isn't desirable. A world like that is without hope. But thanks be to the Lord, we don't have to have a world like that. We have a world filled with the majesty of the Lord and all His goodness if we just open our eyes and see it. That every human being is created in the image of God. Not just Christians. Every person, regardless of age, size, ethnicity, religion, gender, intellect, ability. Every human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth. As C.S. Lewis wrote long ago, you have never met a mere mortal. You can behold the majesty of the Lord in anybody and everybody because he's that good. His common grace abounds everywhere if we have eyes to behold him. God crowned all of us with glory and honor and our deepest identity and lasting happiness are found in him, not in ourselves, not in our affirmation of others. The core of who we are is stable and secure and the one God who is mindful of us and cares for us. Behold the majesty of the Lord and his goodness. And his goodness doesn't end there. It goes on. In verses 6 through 8, David continues reflecting on Genesis 1. Right, This, this idea of dominion over the animals. In, in Genesis 1.28, we read this. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what David is saying in Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8. God created humanity with a derived dominion. We were made to be his representatives on earth, filling the earth with glad-hearted worshipers, stewarding all of creation to display his glory. That's what David is reflecting on. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't stop in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, we see how humanity uses dominion. Not to rule, but to ruin. Instead of ruling over creation, Adam and Eve listen to creation. The serpent, the enemy, they ignore God's greatness and make themselves great. They doubt God's goodness, they deny His love. And now all of creation groans under the weight of sin. So we said the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Disease and death, war and terror, hate, sadness, sickness. And it's not just the world. If we're honest, we are not the way we are supposed to be. We are just like Adam and Eve. We rebel against God. We disobey His word. We doubt His love. Instead of praising Him for His glory... We set our lives up in such a way to try to get most glory for ourselves. And left to ourselves, we're back up in verse 1. We are God's enemy. It says, Psalm 8 leaves us asking, how will God defeat his enemies and not destroy us? It's as if Psalm 8 leaves us asking, 
Will there ever be a day when all things are once again under the feet of men? Of any man? He's reflecting on Genesis. But perhaps he's also looking forward. Perhaps David just doesn't have a mankind in view, but a specific man in view. Maybe David is not just looking at the Lord's greatness and goodness, but his grace. And we must remember that the Lord's grace is not a thing. The Lord's grace is a person, Jesus Christ. Behold the Lord's majesty in his grace in the one Psalm 8 points to. Behold the majesty of the Lord in his grace. This psalm is referenced four times in the New Testament, each one with direct connections to the person and the work of Jesus. We're going to look at two of them. Matthew 21. In your pew Bible, you can find that on page 826. <clears throat> the words of Christ himself. Starting in verse 14, the Lord Jesus says this. The blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he, that is Jesus, did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? So Jesus is in the temple. He's healing the blind and the lame. A picture of restoration, a picture of Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8, restoration, back to the way all things are supposed to be. And the children see this and they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. So they, they, they call Son of David. And so they're crying out, save us, you are the promised one of God, save us. The religious leaders understand what the children are saying and they don't like it. They think it's blasphemy. The children are worshiping Jesus as if he's God. So the religious leaders ask Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus responds at the end of verse 16. He basically says, yeah, don't you have a Bible? Go back to Psalm chapter 8. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Do you see what Jesus just did? In quoting Psalm 8, Jesus tells the accuser who he is and who he is. They are God's enemy, and he is God himself, who receives praise, just as Psalm 8 said. Behold the majesty of the Lord and the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And what does this Christ do? Flip over to Hebrews 2, the passage we read earlier. Page 1001 in your pew Bible. Starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love this. He's like, I know it's in the Bible, but then he quotes it perfectly. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little... For a little while, lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 8. That's what he just quoted. Now he's going to apply it for us. Now in putting, sub, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you see how Hebrews interpret Psalm 8? Everything is already in subjection to Jesus. Though we don't fully see it yet, we see Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who's been crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of a supreme show of strength? No. Through weakness. Through death, even. Behold. The majesty of the Lord, his unexpected greatness, his undeserved goodness, his unmerited grace. He puts everything in subjection, not by strength, by weakness. And how did it all begin? The weakness of a baby. Christ Jesus came as a baby, helpless, vulnerable, weak. Why? Just as Psalm 8 says, to still, to silence, to defeat God's enemy. The seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, promised in Genesis 3.15, comes to us in Christ, a baby in a manger. He permanently weds himself to human flesh because he's mindful of us, because he cares for us. He came to do what we could not. The first Adam and every one of us fail, but Jesus, the second Adam, perfectly obeys, but he still dies. Why? So that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is everyone who turns from their sin, everyone who confesses their rebellion, for everyone who admits left to themselves they are God's enemy. Apart from Jesus, death is still ours to swallow on our own. And it will take you all of eternity to choke it down. But for everyone who trusts in Christ, he took our brokenness, he pays the penalty for our sin, he bears the weight of our shame. And here's the soul staggering, majestic, greatness, goodness, and grace of the Lord. Though he lay cold and dead, three days later, Christ gets up and walks out of the tomb crowned with all glory and honor forevermore. He tasted death, but he chewed it up and he spit it out. Walking out, the enemy of death has been defeated. The enemy is silenced. And one day soon, Jesus is returning to finally and fully put everything in subjection to him, just as Psalm 8 testifies to. To restore and reorder the world so that it might be perfect, A perfect exercise and joy of our God-given dominion. Stewarding creation, the splendor and majesty as it was always meant to be. Singing of the majestic glory of the Lord. Imagine the feast and the festivals, the songs and the stories fully awakened to the beauty of Christ. The light of life, enjoying creation, art, sports, food, drink, creation, wonder. As it was always meant to be, as Psalm 8 tells us. Forever in the presence of the Lamb who was slain, yet risen, enjoying the beauty and the brilliance, the work, the worth, the wonder of King Jesus. That's what Psalm 8 points us to. Jesus shows us all that it means to be truly human. 
to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And through the Spirit, we, the church, are being remade into the image of Jesus, one degree of glory to another. In Christ, you're becoming more and more human to enjoy the glory of God and His grace that was always meant to be, knowing and enjoying the Lord. And as a church, as Arlington Baptist Church, you get to show what this means. You get to show what it means to be a relationship with and under the benevolent rule of Jesus as you do what Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 tell us to do, make disciples. Right? The mission hasn't changed. Fill the world with worshipers. Or as you say here, delight in God, display His glory, declaring His plays and making disciples of His people. That's what we get to do together. We do this together that we might say and sing together, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Beloved, I hope you behold the majesty of the Lord in Psalm 8. His unexpected greatness, His undeserved goodness, His unmerited grace. But more importantly, most importantly, behold the majesty of the Lord in Jesus Christ Himself. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in the name of Christ by the power of Your Spirit. Give us eyes to not only see but to savor your majesty in creation and the cross and the Christ as we long for heaven. Help us see and behold Jesus that we might live under his good and gracious rule, submitting our lives to him, seeking to help others know him and enjoy him until we meet him face to face. Do this, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen.